Welcome back to The Re-Education. I'm Eli Lake, and today's show is about punk and why destruction is necessary for cultural renewal. My guest is libertarian writer and podcaster Nick Gillespie. This is a long one, but worth every minute. I know what you're thinking, punk. You're thinking, did he fire six shots or only five? Now, to tell you the truth, I forgot myself and all this excitement. Being this is a 44 Magnum, the most powerful handgun in the world, and will blow your head clean off. You could ask yourself a question. Do I feel lucky? Well, do you, punk? We just heard from Clint Eastwood in his role as Inspector Dirty Harry Callahan after he tracked down a crazed sociopath named Charles... Scorpio Davis. In the traditional sense of the word, Scorpio is the very definition of a punk. He's a criminal coward who in that final scene with Dirty Harry grabs a terrified young boy as a human shield, only to have our anti-hero shoot the gun out of his hand. At one point in the movie, Scorpio pays a man to beat him up so he can later claim to the authorities that Dirty Harry abused his civil rights. And of course, the press plays right along with it. Now, when we use punk as a noun, usually we mean this kind of gutless menace, a terror who is easily frightened. It's what Brand Nubian, the artist playing now in the background, mean in this song aptly titled, Punks Jump Up to Get Beat Down. Indeed, For most of its life in the English language, punk has been a derogation. In Elizabethan England, for example, it was a synonym for prostitute. Steve Allen, the Bill Maher of the 1950s, once parodied Elvis Presley performing Misery Motel, a knockoff of Heartbreak Hotel, get it, with a band that he called the Four Punks. For more on this linguistic history of the word punk, I really recommend looking up a 2018 Medium post from J.P. Robinson called The Rotten Etymology of Punk. And as he demonstrates, really till the end of the 1960s, punk was a fighting word. It was an insult. It was something that no one really wanted to be. Then came the 1970s, which were, for the most part, a real drag. There was an energy crisis. Gasoline was... For a time rationed, people had to wait in lines to fill up their tanks. The brutal combination of high unemployment and inflation, a phenomenon Milton Friedman called stagflation, plagued the Western economies. And this says nothing of the Watergate scandal and a wave of political bombings from domestic terrorists. A lot of people forget, but President Gerald Ford was nearly assassinated. The thing is, is that despite the dreadful economy, the atmosphere of political scandal, the bombings, the cults, the drugs, the corruption. A lot of popular culture was just terrific. There was a slew of great film directors, Spielberg, Coppola, De Palma, Scorsese, who made some of their best work in the 1970s and really kind of established their names. Woody Allen hits his stride with movies like Annie Hall and Manhattan. Comedy is revolutionized in the 1970s by George Carlin and, of course, Richard Pryor. And in music... I mean, where to begin? The Stones released Exile on Main Street. Dylan gave us Blood on the Tracks. We get Glam with David Bowie and T-Rex. And later in the decade, we get Prince and the first solo Michael Jackson record, Off the Wall. One of the greatest albums ever. I haven't even mentioned Bob Marley and the Wailers. Nonetheless, let's be honest. Some of the music 
from the new rock gods in the 1970s was getting a bit flabby. You might even say it became ornate. We are now listening to an interminable synthesizer solo from Emerson Lake and Palmer's nine-minute version of Aaron Copeland's Fanfare for the Common Man. Believe it or not, an edited version of this song made it to number two on the UK charts. And it wasn't just the seven-minute solos and the pretense of rock bands who were now considering themselves as artists with a capital A. The great rock bands of the 1970s, like baseball players and football players of that era, were accumulating so much wealth, their lives were really inaccessible to most of their fans. I mean, the Rolling Stones may have been the ultimate rebels in the 1960s when they had the audacity to sing about spending the night with a woman. But by the 1970s, the Stones were millionaires, bitching about how their tax debt had forced them to move to a beautiful castle in southern France. For the younger baby boomers, the kids who missed the 1960s and had to make their way through the deprivations and boredom of daily life in the 1970s, something had to give. And so it did. That, of course, is The Clash, from their debut record of the same name in 1977. This track is called Career Opportunities, and it's a middle finger to the rock royalty of the era and just about everything else in their native United Kingdom. And while The Clash would later embrace international socialism... Listen to my episode with the great Michael Moynihan for more on that one. This first record was a defiant yawp. It was neither left nor right, just creative rage. It was punk rock, and it burned through the decadent underbrush of popular culture like a forest fire. Now, I should say the origins of punk is highly debated, and I get into this with my guest Nick Gillespie in the interview. So I should say that The Clash and The Sex Pistols were not the first punk rock bands. But when they both appear on the scene in London in 1976, a year after a similar music scene emerges in New York around two clubs, Max's Kansas City and CBGB's, punk rock becomes an international phenomenon. It's in this period that we see how the word punk gets appropriated by its target in the way that queer and neocon were. Because of the output of the Ramones, the Sex Pistols, the New York Dolls, Wire, and of course our beloved Clash, Today, when you use the word punk as an adjective or say something is punk rock, it means you have integrity, that you stick to your guns, that you do it yourself, and you don't care for the opinion of your betters. Indeed, you kind of hope that the elites are offended by the art that you are creating. Listen to this clip from the Sex Pistols, an interview that they did on British television with Bill Grundy. It's quite famous. No, no. What was the rude word? Shit. Was it really? Good heavens, you God. frightened little oh, girl. All right. so what about you girls behind? Are you, uh... <laughs> well, your granddad. Are you worried or are you just enjoying yourself? Enjoying myself. Are you? Yeah. yeah. That's what I thought you were doing. I always wanted to meet you. Did you really? Yeah. We'll meet afterwards, shall we? <laughs> yeah. You dirty son. <laughs> you dirty old man. Well, keep going, Chief. Keep going. <laughs> Go on, you've got another five you seconds. Dirt, Say something outrageous. You dirty bastard. 
Now, the fact that Johnny Rotten here said dirty words on live television was at the time a national scandal in the United Kingdom. It made the front pages of the newspapers. In that interview, by the way, a member of the Pistol's entourage is wearing a swastika armband. And while real neo-Nazis would later glom on to elements of the post-punk hardcore movement, it's a mistake in this case to think that the nihilistic Pistols admired the Nazis. They just hated their parents, many of whom fought the Nazis in World War II. And the more the parents were offended and frightened, the more the Pistols and the other punks were embraced. And this is what made punk in the late 70s and early 80s such a phenomenon. It wasn't just music that stripped the artifice away from arena rock and created a fresh new sound, though it certainly did that. It was that it also prompted this parental freakout that mirrored the same reactions that we saw to Elvis and the Beatles and later to early hip hop and people like Ice Cube. A classic episode of the television show Quincy, where Jack Klugman plays a crime-stopping medical examiner, best illustrates this moral panic. Here's a clip. She comes home and she finds her daughter burning cigarette holes in her arm, shredding her clothes to bits, taking pills, and locking herself in a room listening to that violence-oriented punk rock music. You've got to see it with your own eyes to believe it, Quince. Later on in that episode, Quincy actually writes up a report that blames punk rock for the murder of a teenage boy he's investigating. It's wild stuff. Now, of course, it turns out that punk rock really wasn't that dangerous at all. Like all genres of great music, it was eventually absorbed into the mainstream. Today, a Ramon song will tell you to buy Diet Pepsi. That kid left the music on again. It's so annoying. This noise is unacceptable. What the? I can't even... I have a 7 a.m. workout. And those guys upstairs are driving me crazy. Here's a Sex Pistols guitar player, Steve Jones, giving a talk at that countercultural establishment known as Google in 2012. It was great. I mean, I didn't really pay a lot of attention to all the strikes and all that stuff. It never bothered me because I always stole. So I didn't have to uh, get a job to feed myself, you know. So what, what was the, so now you've got I'm the... not proud of being a thief, by the way. All right. You're the one glamorizing it. I, I just asked you okay. about it. I don't steal anymore. All right. Now, I think Jones here makes a really good point in this exchange. I kind of love it. Because one of the reasons that we still listen to the Pistols nearly 50 years later is because we want to be spectators to degeneracy. We want to visit Planet Punk, but we don't really want to live there. We glamorize their criminality, even though we choose to lead stable, boring lives, pursuing career opportunities, as it were. And in this sense, it's wrong to say that punk is a philosophy for an authentic bohemian life. It's rather an expression of what Joseph Schumpeter, the great economist, called creative destruction. Every now and again, the spirit of punk is necessary to break our shibboleths, expose our decadence, and sneer at our hypocrisy, in the same way that every now and again we need industrial innovations that displace whole industries. In order to rebuild, one must destroy. And right now, our culture is ripe for destruction. Just look at Beyonce, who has announced that she is going back to balderize her catalog to remove a word from a song 
that word being spaz, that has offended a segment of her audience. I mean, the punks would never do anything like that. And that's why we need a new punk rock, not because we need to have nostalgia or relive or replay the old songs from nearly 50 years ago. It's because we need to revive its spirit. Because in my view, at the moment, the tip top of our culture, whether it's music or movies, the kind of prevailing attitudes is in desperate need of some creative destruction. The Re-Education Now is delighted to have as a guest the editor-at-large of Reason Magazine, the host of the interview with Nick Gillespie podcast, and in another life, a music journalist, a PhD, I believe, in yeah. English literature. Is that it? American literature. Um, American literature. Prince. We've won Screw that war. Exactly. I don't know, 30 or 40 years ago. A friend of mine, and what I think is one of the most interesting public intellectuals we have right now, Nick Gillespie. Thank you so much for coming on The Reeducation. I thank you, although I have to say with that last comment, my estimation of you has really gone into the toilet. So, Oh, you do I, not consider yourself a good public intellectual? I no. Yeah, no. Okay. But I want to believe you, so Fair make enough. me sound smart. You are smart. Well, we, as you know, the topic of today's show is, is punk rock. And the first thing I want to get into before we kind of go into a deeper dive into the history of the genre and what it means kind of in a broader cultural sense is in 2022, what does it mean when we say somebody is punk rock versus what does it mean when we say someone is a punk? Yeah. Because they're very, they're very different meanings, even though it's kind of the same word. Right. And I think, you know, obviously somebody who's a punk is, you know, I always think of the Dirty Harry movie. Uh, I think it's Sudden Impact. That's in my uh, which, monologue, yes. Yeah. Oh, okay. Well, which is yeah. late in, you know, in the mid 80s, early 80s. And it's really, uh, you know, in, in many ways, that's the beginning of the cognitive and aesthetic decline of Clint Eastwood. I think even as his career continued to boom as a director, but he calls, he gets a little guy in the elevator who gets off because some namby-pamby judge in San Francisco lets him off on a technicality because Harry Callahan, you know, didn't bother reading him his rights or having evidence or anything to base his arrest on. But he grabs him and he's like, you know, punk, there's, you know, there's only a couple of things that can happen to, you know, you're, you're punk, you're dog shit. There's only a couple of things that can mm-hmm. happen. Like there's that kind of punk who is just like, a, an annoying little cretin, you know, uh, who is who is a bad actor in in anything in society, whatever yes. subculture you're Someone in. Someone who do, who does not demand respect, 
That's right. And, and who, who is easily always, intimidated. Yeah. And, and, but is also always trying to fuck people over and right. screw people over and things like that. So there, you know, that's a, what a punk is right on some level. But if you're punk rock, that yeah. is the most glorious, you know, Steve uh, Jobs. Yeah. Euphemism, you know, yeah. uh, adulation that you can prey upon somebody, especially um, in places like academia or politics oh, totally. or, or Hollywood. And I'm not talking about entertainment or the media broadly, you know, but like at the Tiffany network at CBS news, if it even still exists or something, Oh, you know, you're so punk rock. John Dickinson is so punk rock, <laughs> you know, something like that. You know, Tom Cruise is punk rock or Will Smith is punk rock. And you know, what that means is that you are somehow authentic. You are somehow a truth teller. You are, you know, risking it all to say an unvarnished truth, speaking right. unvarnished truth to power, putting yourself at risk. Yes. yes. Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I suspect what we'll do today is try to, you know, rescue the concept of punk rock, you know, from if, effectively it's appropriation by the very establishment. It, you know, kind the, of was birthed, you know, that it to destroy. In the Correct. Mid, late 70s. That is the purpose of the show. Now, I want to get to now that we've established the two kind of poles of punk and how we mean it in different ways. Is it fair to say that the original punks and we'll get into this in a second, because there's a there's an interesting kind of history of when punk mu punk rock music started and when people right. started calling themselves punk rock. But was, you know, you could argue that that sort of generation of 76 in mm -hmm. London and New York may have looked at those Dirty Harry movies and said, you know, I, I'm on, I am Scorpio, who was the original villain <laughs> of Dirty Harry. Who is a real punk, by the yeah, way. Yeah, he is, is a real so, punk. And Andy Robinson, the, he's like one of the best, you know, villains in film history. It's, just, it's so exquisitely drawn and acted and whatnot yeah yeah so is it i mean like in a way if you watch like the bill grundy interview mm -hmm. with the sex pistols they're acting like a bunch of scorpios and dirty harry oh, i mean that's they, yeah so they yeah. kind of are those punks they're like and they identify right. certainly you know the sex pistols and the ramones say would right. identify you would always identify with the serial killer you know, not with the cop who brings him to justice, not with the detective. And there's even a great punk song from England by the adverts called Gary Gilmore's Eyes, which is to me in a lot of ways, it, it encompasses a lot of what is great about punk music in that it is bizarrely, it's melodic and it's it has the feel of a pop tune, but it's about somebody who gets, you know, Gary Gilmore, the uh, spree killer, who was the first American to be put to death after 10, 15, 20 or whatever it was, you know, break because of a Supreme Court ruling banning the death penalty. You know, he was, he was put to death by firing squad. His choice in Utah, the subject of the executioner song by Norman Mailer, and he willed his body to science. And so this song, Gary Gilmore's Eyes, is a patient wakes up from a surgery to get an eye transplant and he realizes he is literally looking through the looking at the world with <laughs> Gary Gilmore's eyes and it's fucking great and you can see it on you know it was on like top of pops and stuff like that and it that captures something about punk both in that it is you know annoying and i mean it's cheap it's it's silly it is designed to annoy older people and it is dark and funny it's you know it's taking something 
sickening like serial murder, spree killing, things like that, and turning it into a, a joke, you know, a gothic comedy. Okay. So now I want to get into a little bit of nerdery, but I mm -hmm. think our audience will appreciate it. This is more disputed as I researched for this episode than I originally thought it was, because most people think punk starts in 1976 with the Sex Pistols or the Ramones. But there is an argument that punk starts like with MC5 in Detroit and the Stooges. There's an argument. Yeah. I mean, that punk starts with that song, I Fought the Law. There's an argument that punk starts with question mark and the mystery. I mean, who yeah. knows? So walk, can you walk me through like when does punk start and like why is there this debate about what is the first punk music? Yeah, well, you know, one is because it matters to people. And, you know, okay. and it's interesting, like no matter how small the stakes might be to people who don't give a shit, you know, the fact is, is people care about this. And whenever you see a fight over the origin of something, whether it's a company or a, a yeah. arts movement or a political party, it's because it matters. Right. And, you right. know, and and kind of identifying this. I mean, I think as a matter of history, we can say, you know, punk music does start with question mark and the Mysterians, whose oh, big hit okay. was 69, you know, 69 tears, because Dave Marsh, who was, I believe, writing for Cream Magazine, which was based in Detroit and is coming back, by the way, in the fall, it's being rebirthed. Oh, Cream is coming back. Hiatus. Yeah. It's, and John Martin, who was the longtime publisher of Vice Magazine back when it was very much of a punk kind of, you know, punk influenced zine right. type of thing is the new publisher of cream so that it should be very interesting but you know based in detroit and you know he is the one who talked about this as punk music it was kind of also a synonym for garage bands and things like that so you know the standells and other groups you know kind of of that sort and you know and that informs people like lenny k who was a guitar who was the guitarist for patty smith who did the compilation nuggets which was Yes. Garage bands, you know, bands like the Sandels and the Seeds and, you know, anything rough and raw, the Barbarians, these, you know, 60s, oftentimes one hit wonders. Maybe the Trogs. Yeah, you know, in a way, you know, the thing that is different about the Trogs is that the Trogs enjoyed widespread success, which is they, kind yeah, they of did, By the way, they did Wild Thing. Yeah, no, yeah. And it, and, but the sound is very raw and kind right. of unfinished, which is kind of great. But you, but you have that, and you know, definitely when you look at like the MC5 and the Stooges, they are coming out of a milieu of you know a room, a city, Detroit, which was in flames because of riots in the sixties, which themselves were born out of many, many things including kind of the destruction of the once great civilization of kind of American automa uh, automobile manufacturing, manufacturing in an era of industrial might was ending. So punk almost always takes root in places that are seriously despondent. So it's, you know, Detroit, uh, Detroit in the late 60s as a, as a major wave of deindustrialization takes place. And, you know, black people and working class white people realize they're, you know, the, the establishment, the system isn't working for them. It's working against them to the extent it takes any notice of them what to get whatsoever. Then you go to, you know, New York and particularly the Lower East Side. I'm talking to you. I live on five Bleecker Street, which is literally 50 yards from the old CBGBs, which is at the intersection where Bleecker Street dead ends into Bowery, uh, it's, it's right there. But the Lower East Side, just starting certainly, you know, pretty much New York starts to decline after, after World War II. But by the late 60s, it is inescapable that large pockets of Manhattan 
are just kind of finished. So the Lower East Side in New York and then parts of London where, you know, England emerged from World War II somewhat victorious, but it was no longer a world power. And it had, you know, 20 years, 25 years of brain drain and of economic sclerosis, you know, which ultimately gave rise to, you know, the famous lines and the sex pistols about, you know, England's burning, there's no future for you. You know, just a, a broad-based kind of moan and shout and, you know, directive and imperative to destroy. That's the, you know, that is the ground, the rocky, you know, kind of slummy ground upon which punk music springs. Okay, so why then would we not say that early kinks or early who music, mm -hmm. which is also, yeah. you know, angular, tight, loud, right? But we nobody says that's punk. You know, actually, I do think some people say that about the Kinks, uh, who later in the seventies, when they had a, an incredible fallow period, but they have a song called "The Prince of the Punks." You know, Ray Davies, the leader of the Kinks, you know, the the person behind yeah. the the creative force behind the Kinks, is actually you know was married to Chrissy Hind. Who uh, I we were talking about this yeah. before, but Chrissy Hind's first record with the Pretenders, in my yeah. view, is a punk record. And Absolutely. it's a brilliant record. You should definitely. And she's yeah. coming out of, you know, not Detroit and not New York because she's an American from Northeastern yeah. Ohio, from the Cleveland, the Akron area. She went to Kent State. You know, she, the members of Devo, people from groups like Rocket from the Tombs, which ended up kind of birthing both the Dead Boys and Pear Ubu, who are right. kind of essential punk bands. You know, she came out of that milieu and moved to London you know, in order to become kind of a rock journalist. And she palled around with Nick Kent, who was an early proponent of punk and an influence on that and chronicler of it as well. So it's all kind of mixed, but like what punk, what is essential for punk to happen are large scale failures of the status quo to kind of give right. any sense of hope or forward momentum to society or to large outcasts. I would, you know, if you want to peel it back further, I think, um, you know, punk and, and I would even argue this is a different show, but it would be interesting mm -hmm. that even the folk music, folk movement in New York that, that you know, ultimately gives rise, rise to Bob Dylan, they're all emanations of the beat movement. And the beats are in many ways the first punks or proto-punks. You know, they are people who are outsiders to society. And even as prosperity is kind of breaking out all over in post-war America, they are like, you know what, this society is fake and phony and it's it has no place for people mm -hmm. like me, you know, like Jack Kerouac, like Allen Ginsberg, like Neil Cassidy or William Burroughs, until they force a place for themselves through DIY culture, through saying, you know, fuck you to the establishment. We're going to route around that. We're going to create our own books. You know, we're going to we're going right. to create City Lights Bookstore and City Lights Publishing. And we are going to take the establishment by storm eventually and then kind of scorn it. That's kind of an essential grammar, the DNA of punk. And, you know, I think it comes to music, you know, starting in those movements, you can also look at in New York, earlier bands like, you know, certainly the New York Dolls get a lot of, of you know, kind of talk about this kind of stuff. But I think the Kinks and the Who, in their aggression, in their anger, in their despondency, you know, a song like yeah. My Generation is, you know, really a punk anthem. And um, Patti Smith makes it a punk anthem yeah. on her great album, Horses. Okay, so this is an mm -hmm. interesting, as you see, it's a disputed yeah. area. But uh, let me push back in one sense. It seems to me one element of at least the traditional narrative about punk is that it was a response to 
Emerson, Lake and Palmer yeah, and like early yeah. Genesis and all of Just this Pink, Pink Floyd. Floyd. Yeah. There was a famous yeah. story about about Johnny Rotten, who was the leader of the Sex Pistols, shows up in Malcolm McLaren's famous store, Sex, which was originally called Let It Rock and all this other stuff. And he's wearing a shirt that that it was he bought that said Pink Floyd. And then he wrote on top of it, I hate I hate right. Pink Floyd. And it was a direct challenge to the progressive er rock where right. late stage hippie dumb. So it is right. ELP. It's Eric Clapton and the cream. It is, you it know, is, it is with Pink all Floyd this like, Genesis. orchestral yes. operatic rock, which the uh, who then goes on to do as well. Yeah. 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 And, and, you know, and then the who though, I mean, again, you know, like uh, who does Tommy they, and Quadrophenia, which but is, then, you know, their album, who's next, you know, which, yes. Literally, you know, the cover is them, you know, because rock rock at its best is a mentally retarded, you know, form of art. And I mean that in the strongest sense possible, like it is dumb and primitivist. But, you know, on who's next they are, it shows the band members walking away from a concrete obelisk, in a you know, slag yard and a waste heap, right, where they have all urinated on this block of concrete, but it's got won't get fooled again on it. And Bob O'Reilly, you know, a song about teenage wasteland, you know, so it's, it's after the collapse of society. And yeah, but that can't be that. punk because who's next is like the epitome of classic rock. Yeah, maybe. Yeah. Yeah. I mean, I'm it, not saying uh, no, it... I, I, and Led Zeppelin too, but like Led Zeppelin also, you know, has punkish elements to it. And, but here, here is where, you know, if we say, OK, well, you know, Dave Marsh is the guy who coins the term punk music right. and he, he applies it to a subset of kind of regional 60s hits, you know, that are right. kind of rough and ready garage bands, you know, so it's not smooth anything. It's rough, you know, rough and ready, short music, you know, by the mid 70s, you have bands that are performing like the Ramones, the, the Heartbreakers. Uh, you know, with uh, the Heartbreakers, uh, groups like the Cramps and the Dead Boys show up. You know, there's not Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers. You're talking That's about right. Johnny Thunder and the Heartbreakers. Yes. Yeah. And now, boy, is that like a world of difference, right? Yes. You know, Johnny Thunders and the Heartbreakers versus Tom Petty and the Heartbreakers, you know, and that's not to say anything bad about Tom Petty. But it's, you know, what what very, very different worlds they inhabit. That first record, though, marketed as a punk record when That's they right. were, even though we would never say the Tom Petty. Okay. Um, having so, but what I was getting at, then you have Punk Magazine, which also gives right. a name to this nascent movement, which again is more broad than just music. Music is the most kind of accessible version of it. But there are writers, there are artists, there are cartoonists. Right. Um, you know, I had known this and forgotten it and remembered it in prepping for this. Peter Bagg, you know, the the underground comic artist who's best known for Hate, which was an, a, an alternative comic that chronicled Seattle, like the grun rise of grunge in Seattle, was one of the original illustrators for Punk Magazine. And he comes out of a tradition of he worked with Robert Crumb on, on various kinds of publications. And, and Peter is both you know, he hates hippies and he's in a band that does like Holly's covers, you know, so it's like it's all entwined and it's important. One of the reasons I stress this, it's all entwined and it's important to understand that, you know, every generation makes its mark by killing, you know, the previous generation. And so uh, yes. punk has to distinguish itself against hippiedom and especially that late flowering, you know, the decadent hippiedom of yeah. the ELP 
you know, brain salad surgery or, you know, pictures at an exhibition where, you know, it's a bunch of fucking rock guys or, you know, playing Musa Gorski or Rick Wakeman's King Henry, the six wives of King Henry VIII, which he toured with an ice rink and ice skaters on it. And it's like, yeah. what is this? This is like a Romanov czar. Yeah. yeah. You know, this is, right. this is the, you know, the French court playing at being peasants right before the French revolution. It's just gone too far. It's so decadent. It's so gross. And it's so bloated. Uh, right. And the punks, you know, to, to a person, all of them, whether you're talking about Iggy and the Stooges or the, the New York dolls, or certainly the Ramones and the sex pistols were like, I hate hippies. I hate hippies. And they do because the hippies were kind of their older brothers and sisters who wouldn't pay attention to them and then just had become these kind of grotesque, bloated corpse versions of themselves. Okay, and now I want to get to something that I found in my prep for this show fascinating, which was that one of the factors that influenced at least the British punk explosion of 76 is this early 70s, 50s revival. The first mm -hmm. Malcolm McLaren shop was, I think it was called Let It Rock, yeah. And it was like he was selling, you know, chubby checker singles right. and, you know, leather Gene jackets. Vincent and Eddie, what's his right. name? And yeah. And, you know, that the, the pre-Beatles rockers, you know, and who there wore were, blue jeans and had DA haircuts and, you know, the stuff that was, Shana I mean, it's a, yeah, exactly. Shana it was, on, it was weirdly at Woodstock. <laughs> yeah, no, and that may and Greece, you know, the musical yes. Greece, you know, and, and Happy Days. Uh, well, even before Happy Days, American yeah. Graffiti. Oh, you know, American is, Graffiti, right. You know, right. The, it, the late hippie, or, you know, in the late 60s, suddenly, you know, by the way, that's the first George Lucas film is yeah. American Graffiti. And it's actually the soundtrack was, it's a is this, oh, really? What yeah. was his first film? His first one is the terrible, tedious, dystopian movie, THX 1138. Okay. which takes the place first... in a world where everybody wears white and Robert Duvall is, you know, kind of like a vision of a dystopian future because he's wearing right. white and his ball. It's the first watchable George Lucas movie. Yeah. Maybe the last watchable movie. Because <laughs> right. American Graffiti is a great, fantastic movie. I mean, there's... And the and, soundtrack you know... was incredibly influential yeah. on both mm -hmm. sides of the Atlantic. Yeah. And, you know, it's a little, little bit of sort of, I don't know if it's trivia, but... Joe Strummer, who would go on to lead the Clash, the only band that matters. I'm wearing their T-shirt right now. He, they record brand new Cadillac on London Calling, maybe the best album ever made. Brand new Cadillac is part of that whole '50s revival. And yeah, by the way, I mean London Calling is a throwback to bloated. Well, let's know, they, we'll that, talk yeah, about. We'll get London. to that in a minute. But we'll get to that in a minute. But before Joe Strummer is in the Clash. He's in a group called the 101ers, which is a pub rock band, which are these bands that are like kind of sprouting up over the, yeah. all over the UK that are kind of anti-hippie, anti-bloat, mm -hmm. and they're coming very close to what punk is. If you listen to a group called Eddie and the Hot Rods, right. which is a band that plays, it sounds like punk music, but they're themselves a conscious homage to the pre-Beatles 50s rock. Right. So in punk, what you have is a kind of, in a weird way, in the very, in the meaning of the term radical, a return to the root of what rock and roll is. Yes. Which and is, you I, see this, yeah, even yeah. the Beatles by the end of the 60s, this is the whole point of get back. Right? Yes. Like that they've got a, you know, we enough with all the 
you know, we went on the um, magical mystery yeah. tour. Yeah. You know, we're done. Like we've got to play songs that we can actually play live. Right. So you see that also when you're talking about pub rock, somebody like Alan Price, who was in the animals, you know, became a leader of that movement when he, then, you know, in the animals split and, you know, they kind of, you know, fade away and Eric Burden becomes this insane hippie version of, you know, he becomes like Donovan or something where he, by the way, listeners, if you want a, just, we have to stop for a second on Eric Burden. If you want a real experience, look up an album called black man's burden, Mm -hmm. which is Eric Burden. Who's the leader of the animals who is like kind of one of these kinks and who groups, right? We got to get out of this place. Yeah. We, you know, a a proto-punk rocker, Right. Jimi Hendrix drops a ton of acid and take it. And then joins war, which is (laughs) an amazing. I love war for funk. Yeah. And then this album is like so bizarre because it's like Eric Burden. It's like he he was he's he's like a a proto Ibram X Kendi figure in that he's He's an ally. He's an ally, super ally. He's doing the work. He's absolutely doing the work (laughs) in this album because Black Man's Burden is all about. He's in a song where he's like trying to recreate the slave ship as a white yeah. guy. It's really, it's could never be made today, but it no. is so, it's a fascinating like left turn and, for this guy. And if I may though, this is also yeah. chose the limits of this, the uh, uh, black yeah. man's burden. It's a gatefold record. Yes. And there, it is a sickening sexist display of like part of what Eric burden is doing is allowing the black members of war to yes. have sex with white groupies because there's like naked women lying in a field as one of the members is taking off his belt and Eric Burden has a black woman on his shoulders and the black band members have white women. It's like, you know, rock is in many ways and like many aspects of popular culture is like a boy's plaything. It's like the NFL or something. And it a black man's burden might be the apotheosis of that genre of pop right. music. It's very it's, bizarre. It's legit cringy now, even yeah. though I think musically it's very good. And he, oh yeah, yeah, he's got a like a, an ode to a, a great jazz player named Rasan Roland Kirk. Mm-hmm. It's just anyway, but yeah. Okay. And so so, but just uh, to yeah. uh, back to pub rock, you know, which is a uh, which is a big influence yeah. in punk rock. Yeah, I mean, and Alan Price did the soundtrack to Oh Lucky Man, a movie with Malcolm McDowell, who of course played Alex in Clockwork Orange, and is kind of like a punk actor. By the end of the 60s, he's in a series of movies where the character is an anti-hero and is kind of punk-like. Yeah. And But Alan Price, you know, his uh, check out his song, Oh Lucky Man. And that's the beginning of a back to roots kind of pub rock that also gives rise to among the bands that you talk about, also groups like The Stranglers and whatnot. And kind of- Of course, Elvis births, Costello. Yeah, births into something, yeah. you know, like Rough Trade Records, which was kind of like the big- Punk stiff records which is a, i'm sorry which is a, I'm, yeah yes. stiff, stiff record, record which is a punk me. label in some ways but it was originally like a pub rock label right but it's all of this like energy of basically like you know what we understand that the rolling stones and pink floyd are the yeah. hottest thing in the world right now but we wish music would go back to bill haley and the right. freaking comets right you know so it's sort of and like stripping out the artifice stripping out right. the techno you know, the pyrotechnics and, you know, the 80 foot long inflatable penises that Mick Jagger, you know, is riding or, you know, the laser light shows that you have to be in a state of the art planetarium to enjoy Pink Floyd or Genesis, that type of thing. That return 
you know, that stripping down of artifacts, artifice and to, you know, immediacy and also not waiting to be good at your instruments before you start to play or even record. This is all part of punk and it's the energy and the power, I would say. And we should talk about it in the American context, too, because it really starts in America and then gets yes. goes back. But in a British context, you know, this is very much, in, especially in the prototypical punk haircuts early on of like just short bowl cuts or buzz cuts and, and shaved heads. It's a rebuke of hippie long hair and that kind of cavalier, courtly, aristocratic, Edwardian and, you know, you know, stuff that is calls to mind King Charles the first in the 17th century. There was an English civil war between the forces of Oliver Cromwell and his new model army, this is, which this is, is the name of a punk yes. band. And Charles, the Cavaliers and the Loyalists who are, you know, flouncy and incredible word, you know, they're able to skewer people with their wit and their great swordsmen. But they're, you know, they're kind of gay. They're kind of effeminate. They cry all the time. They wear, you know, dress practically wear dresses. And this was in England. This was part of the battleground is that, you know, Johnny Rotten's haircut meant a lot there. And, and particularly among women, just cutting their hair and bearing themselves and, you know, and being ugly or putting needles and, you know, safety pins through your face and, and things stylistically, like that. I would say aesthetically, yeah. a lot of the look, especially when you look at, say, Susie Sue of Susie mm-hmm. the Banshees, who is part of that original London, they're they're mm-hmm. very much influenced by Bowie and the glam from a certain aesthetic, even though Absolutely. musically they're totally different. And, and Bowie, Bowie becomes is, an right, enemy because well, he becomes Bo- an enemy. Yeah. But Bowie is the one who goes to America and discovers Iggy Pop and Lou Reed. Right. And wants to kind of, you know, like resurrect their careers. Totally. And And he takes the best parts of them to create, you know, characters like Ziggy Stardust and the Thin White Duke. But he also in the mid 70s goes through a phase where and this is kind of important in England, you know, where on the one hand in 1976, famously Eric Clapton, you know, who Clapton is God, you know, is a can we just you know, say right now eric clapton is the most overrated rock star in the history of rock stars that's quite possibly true even if you I, like him because he is yes. the most hyped you know god I, of rock, yeah right yeah but by this point he's you know he alternates between being a heroin junkie and just a, a straight up old alcoholic and whatnot but in a drunken concert in 1976 he endorsed enoch powell who was an old you know, and complicated politician, actually, who had given a speech, of, you know, that's known in England as the Rivers of Blood speech, where he said, we need to keep England for the English. And this, you know, is cropping up in the late 60s as more and more third world, you know, former members of the Commonwealth are coming flooding into England, where there's no opportunities or anything. Right. And people feel like, you know, the whites in England, we have to keep English, you know, England for the English. And when Clapton, you know, you know, pronounces solidarity with Enoch pa- Powell, punks flip their shit. And, uh, and we're, we're going to get to that. Okay. This is like well, the and end, that's Bowie, the end of punk. The end also, of punk is rock. You're getting it to rock against racism. Well, we'll get there. I'm just yeah. saying, but this is the battle lines early on because right. Bowie at the same time was telling Playboy and Rolling Stone that what England needed was a fascist leader. And he was wearing kind of swastikas or swastika-like, you know, insignia, and there was a lot of fascist elements and fascist aesthetics in his work, you know, in the yeah. early 70s. It's the 70s the were wild. 70s. Yeah. And so they're like, well, Bowie, you know what? We like your androgyny, but yeah. you know, we're, you're an enemy now. So. Well, OK, but this is interesting because I want to get to like 
punk explodes, let's, I think we could say the Ramones are 75 and CBGB's is like 75. And it's, it's a very New York thing. And it's a really important cultural thing in New York, but it's not a national no, the national media is not over. It doesn't even extend past like you know Fourteenth Street, really, right. in New but York. It's, it's a, a huge, downtown thing, but it's, it's a, a big huge, thing. But it's it's not it's not. Yeah, and it's but also it's not like, big. It's not big, but it's it's like really important because Andy Warhol knows about it, and right. the cultural elite know about it. But yes. it's not. But then seventy six is the year in, and it starts in London where this movement and this music becomes the biggest cultural thing in the world it, right. in the sense that you know it's there's, there's a little bit but it's it to give you a sense the song god save the queen which comes out the same year as the queen's jubilee and there's a famous like boat cruise where the sex pistols are playing it in the middle of the celebration and everything and that song is the number one song in the united kingdom but they will not list it in the actual mag they won't they won't they'll it just is blank the number one mm. record member is blank because they won't even acknowledge it it becomes the biggest thing in the world there's a famous interview, which I played in the monologue with Bill Grundy on U- British television, where they the, the Sex Pistols curse and they call him an, a, a fucking rotter yeah. and a dirt, you dirty and old he, man. And he is, you know, he is goading them on. He's goading like, oh, them on, but it's kind of incredulous. quite bad boys, you know, say yes. something naughty. Right. And then, yeah. and so, and this then causes a huge sensation. It becomes right. front page news. And punk is a phenomenon in 76. It becomes a huge right. international thing. And May I just yes. take it back? And I, I yeah. apologize for no, this. No, 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 please do. Yeah. You know, Malcolm McLaren came over to New York in the early and he, wa- 70s. he wanted the New York dolls. Right. right. And he actually got them. He wanted Richard Hell. He settled yeah. for the New York dolls and he dressed them up and he tried to make them into a proto communist band that that was going to be, they were going to wear red and they were going to somehow be Soviet files and things like that, which is a miscalculation, let's say, to take a band like that, because whatever, whatever anarchistic punk antinomian energy the New York Dolls have, like you cannot strap that onto any kind of political message. It just, it can't be contained in that way. Right. But then McLaren... McLaren goes back and, you know, he takes a lot of what he sees, you know, and it's part Ramones, it's part Richard Hell, who had been in television and then had, you know, started his own band, Richard Hell and the Voidoids, that had a signature song called The Blank Generation that television would play, but it really is a Richard Hell song. And that is, you know, it's a kind of almost not even a celebration. It's like a recitation of the fact that they are living in a post- you know, in a world where things have stopped to mean anything, things have stopped to work, and you just are trying to figure out how do you get through the day? Because like all of your gods, have, right? you know, all of your gods have died or all of your gods have vanished. And you're living in a place where there's a lot of junkies, there's rubbles. You know, one of the original, one of the ways that CBGBs became so big is that a place where all of these early bands played the Mercer Art Center which was a, a ballroom attached to a single room occupancy hotel in Greenwich Village, uh, you know, which was a degenerate, you know, degenerate central then collapsed. And th- that meant there were like no venues left for these bands to play right. in because no respectable place. And they go to CBGB's, which I don't, were you ever in CBGB's when it was open? 
Eli? I think I went when I would travel to New York as a college. Yeah. I think I did go. I did go. Yeah. I forget exactly who I saw because it was the 90s by then. It wasn't the same. Yeah. But it was an unremarkable. It was a dive. Yeah. It was a dive. And there's no Kansas City is the other one. And that's a dive. Yeah. Yeah. And it was dirty and disgusting. The Ramones, you know, certainly, you know, and and a couple of other bands. But McLaren kind of takes that back to England as well as other, you know, people who are just kind of fed up and are like, okay, we're going to, you know, start bands oftentimes with money that they got from the dole. This is as a libertarian who is generally against welfare. One of the most interesting things is that, yeah, and you can actually chart this back earlier in the 60s even, but England had become a country where very few people worked. The economy was shit. Right. You know, and, and, and there was just a sense of like, we are no longer a world power where this burnt out husk of uselessness, but they gave a lot of welfare to a lot of kids. Like if you were a student, Art students famously, they would sign up for art school because it was easy. And then you would take the money you got for that and buy instruments and kind of figure out how to play them or steal them, you know, from. Other well, people. that's we'll, we'll get into that. But OK, now I'm sorry. I wanna, I mean to no, 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 no. This is important, though, because I want your your point is well taken that the original punk is not really political in any sense. Right. Even though you could argue like MC5 is like they of, were they were and political. They, they were trying to be political. You know, they were white Panthers and white. Yeah, power they were like people. weather underground. Politics. They were allies to yeah. the Black Panther and the Black Power movement. Right. And then, you know, and their early manager who ended up kind of working with Springsteen, John, Bruce Springsteen, John Landau, they wanted there was a politics around them that ultimately, I think, not only limited their audience, but actually hurt their art. And then um, unlike the original, a lot of the original British punks, the MC5, at least I think its leader, went from playing in a band to becoming a criminal as opposed to being a criminal right. and joining a band. That's right. Which is an yeah. interesting story with MC5 because they really did. They, they, this guy really, his life really descended into into a, into a life of crime for terrible reasons too. I mean, yeah. there were you know, but and I'll also just point out that you know John Lennon, who also has certain proto punk sensibilities. You oh. know, when you think of songs like Working Class Hero, Give Me Some Truth which was covered by a lot of punk bands and things oh, like yeah. that. I mean, his singles in, you know, right out of the Beatles and in the early seventies, a lot of that was very punkish. He did a song for John Sinclair, uh, who right. was, you know, all in all of this and the MC five's guitarist, uh, Fred Sonic Smith married, not only married Patty Smith, you know, they both had the same last name before they got married, but then he moved her back to Detroit and kind of turned her into a housewife, a suburban housewife. She didn't really get back in the no, rock business for, you know, until he croaked. Hmm. So I, then it, that's weird, too, because it's like, wait, I, you know, yeah, MC5 it, is this revolutionary gorilla. But what we really need is somebody around to do the laundry and keep the house clean. Well, there you go. I mean, you can look at but this is a yeah. story that. OK, so now it, I, I mentioned that I'm very interested in this question about sort of punk is really not political. It's anti-politics. Right. Because when you look at that, that kind of that iconic Bill Grundy interview with the Sex Pistols and their yeah. friends, Susie Shoes there and other. Right. One and, guy and including in, one girl who is wearing a swastika. Yeah, armband exactly. I'm back. saying there's a swastika yeah. armband and there's a right. there's a, and, and this gets very complicated because there is an outbreak. You could maybe argue with Sham 66, I 69. guess. 69. Sam 69. Sam 69. Yeah. 
but then later with what became sort of punk adjacent known as hardcore, there were groups that were explicitly right. white supremacist, you know, kind of Aryan nation types, it's yeah. an, a subset, even though there were also a subset of punks who, who, who brawled with them. Right. And there was kind of an Antifa punk as well. Right. But when this is important, and maybe you can explain this, when Sid Vicious wore a swastika T-shirt, he's not endorsing national socialism or anti-Semitism. Right. He's just wearing the one thing that the his parents' generation who fought World War II would find to be right. the worst, most awful, offensive thing. Is that Absolutely. right? Absolutely. Yeah, I yeah. think so. And and Johnny John Lydon or Johnny Rotten has even talked about it. That you know, in a way, he was like you know, Sid didn't get it because Sid Vicious was kind of stupid in a in a very yes. profound way. I mean, he's not, you know, he he wasn't a, you know, I, I let's just say he would upset the distributions of the bell curve. I suspect. But the point of kind of Nazi regalia in a lot of the British punk was it was the best, easiest way to piss off your parents who were the people who had suffered through the Blitz, who had right. fought World War II, and were still, you know, in many ways visibly damaged by it, which also explains why in the U.S. Nazi insignia didn't work quite the same way, uh, you know, and because the way Americans think about World War II is a little bit different, and it's not it was not as fresh a wound. Having said that, there were Nazi punks both in America and certainly in England, yeah. skinheads and later. things like that. Yeah, slightly but, later. But, yeah, but I think it's absolutely accurate to say before you know, in that first kind of few years of punk, maybe seventy five to seventy nine or so, and we can talk. I'm sure we'll yeah. talk about Margaret Thatcher, but. You know, it was less about a particular politics. And I think what it was, was punk was a kind you know, I don't even want to call it a style because it's not a single aesthetic, but it is an energy that is rooted in anger, you know, and it is an explosion of expression of discontent, anger, nihilism, and a sense of like, it. you know, this is the children of World War II. You know, both in, you know, especially in England, but to a certain degree in in America, it was the second half of the baby boom. So it's not the Woodstock hippies. It's the ones who come of age when all of the post-war boom and growth and optimism is dying because of everything that, you know, but everything that kind of peaked in the 60s, it's it's post-Altamont america so this the dream of the 60s is that we're not going back to the garden and who fucking wants to go to the garden anyway because we want to live in cities right uh right. you know this is what punks are saying and there are no jobs in america there are no jobs in england and you know you have been telling us all of these lies first our parents lies about god and society and you know in suburbs it's important that people like lou reed who's very punk you know like comes from suburban Long Island where he's given shock treatment because he has homosexual tendencies, right? right. Like that's what you're, you, you gave us that God. And then you gave us our own brothers and sisters gave us this God of Woodstock, which is really ultimate. So fuck you all. And yes. we're angry and we're expressing that anger and where we are and who we are. And that takes a lot of different forms. Okay. And this brings it, and I think it's important now to sort of emphasize something. I think about, so. It's, so to, yeah. I'm sorry, to, yeah, it's no, just, it's, it's pre-political, yes. uh, you know, because this is an energy which then can be kind of extruded through, you know, think of it as like a Play-Doh, you know, barbershop or something where you can extrude the Play-Doh through different dyes and forms 
it's the energy, you know, punk is that Play-Doh and it's just this pre-existing pre-political energy that then can be turned into a lot of different things. But first it's that, you know, incredibly, I mean, I find it, I know a lot of people who find, you know, still find punk noise and horrible and, and ugly and disgusting and all of this, but you know, I, I look at it and I'm, I'm, I'm too young to really have been part of it, but it's like, God, that it's, it's, you know, it's like aqua velvet. It's like being slapped in the face with aqua velvet, you know, yeah. after shaving, it's like, wow, this is bracing stuff. And it makes me feel like, you know, for a minute, somehow somebody, everybody everywhere understands my pain and my angst and my, you know, just inconsolable self and that I can do something about it. Right. Now, here's the interesting thing is on the one hand, the punk movement was a way for people who felt that mainstream culture and the elites of society had nothing to say to them and were not representing them and they were kind of invisible and this is a way of being yeah. seen. And yet, if you look at it today, like, and so that's very valuable for, you know, the kind of, you could say, social progress in the West in the yeah. last 50 years, because today no one would get shock treatment if they were gay. And today we embrace right. all kinds of differences. I mean, we have this yeah. roiling gender debate right now and everything like that. And which is punks, all predicated on the idea, you know, that just like there's, you know, 36 flavors of ice cream, there's 36 right. genders. And, you know, there's, you know, I mean, this is, uh, you know, it's, this is a bizarre connection and it might undermine everything we've been talking about, but there's a kink song called I'm not like anybody else which has its best version done by like the high 60s hippie band, the Chocolate Watch Band, which is the dumbest name for a band. And it's a Absolutely. good band. But that is kind of, you know, that is kind of what punk is about is it's it's this urgent expression of individualism. Right. But it's also a class consciousness that like we are inheriting a world that is right. dead and you and, call and, us and you won't and get freaks. out of the way. Yeah. And you, you call, think and we celebrate that we, we, yeah, and you right. think, yeah, you think that's bad. Just wait until you see what I do to your clothes, the clothes you give me, I'm going to cut them up and stitch them back together in grotesque ways. I'm going to mix and match from everything that you find sacred and profane. I'm going to dye my hair completely neon colors and, you know, spike it into the most ridiculous mohawk, or as they were mostly called in England, Mohicans, you know, mm -hmm. just to piss people mm -hmm. off. And like, you can see that because it's hard to, but you know, hold on. This, uh, right. Okay. So what I want to get at though, is that today, the kind of, you could say that the heirs of that movement are very interested in social control. Mm -hmm. And if you say yeah. the wrong word, if you, if you, totally. if you, if you do not express proper solidarity for whatever the cause is, you are suspect and can be cast out. And I, so to me, it's this great Absolutely. paradox, which is that in some ways they would not have that. I mean, punk is not the only reason for this. There's serious political organizing. I don't want to make it yeah. seem like it's too much, but punk is an element of this. And yet if punk, you know, if there was some equivalent of punk today, it would be deplatformed by the, the, the sort of scolds that want to control culture. May I culture. Yes. absolutely point to, okay, so here's a Do perfect you agree example. With that or, yeah. I, no, absolutely. And I think yeah. it's really important and it gets to where we have gone. And, and part of it yeah. is progress, I think, as a society, yes. but part of it, there's a loss there. Devo, which is a band that a lot of people might not immediately think of as punk, but they were very much in the first wave of punk. And they were, well, they were in, in conversation with punk, right, yeah. But their first big hit, 
such as it was, was a song called Mongoloid, which is about a mentally retarded person who is passing as normal. They still play it in concert, which is amazing. But you have you go from that to acts that are massively big that control the marketplace like Lizzo and Beyonce. Right. To immediately saying, you know what? I used the wrong. I used the term. Spaz. Yes. And I yes, will, I will see, not right. only apologize, I will stop production of that and try to reel those and back balderize and my own again. music and balderize my own music. So that go back and re-record it. Yeah, whatever else that is, that's a long journey that's longer, you know, than the 40 year time span that we're talking about here. And punk. And again, this is why I think it's very, you know, it comes out of the beat movement and other things. But in post-war culture, there was a shift. And actually, this is a wild kind of connection, but there's a great anthropologist named Grant McCracken, who just has a new book out called The Return, to the Ar Return of the Artisan. And he talks about how post-war America is all about the shift from industrial centralized production of the same thing that is perfect and moves up to scale and everybody can afford it. And it's kind of good to the art artisanal. And he says, you know what, like the beats are kind of like an early version of that, right. where they are oh, creating artisanal yeah. culture in the, the great era of, you know, Madison Avenue and glossy. Everybody wanted, you know, branded white bread. You know, nobody wanted artisanal bread. Nobody wanted unsliced bread. You wanted wonder bread. In rich bread, you know, people like Andy Warhol would talk about what was great about Coca-Cola and Lifesavers and all of these treats of post-war Americas that everybody could afford them and they were all the same for everybody. You know, in a way, punk is a big way station on the move away from that to say, no, it's it's about small scale individual expression, you know, and we've continued that apace, I think, in society. But what we have also lost in a lot of ways is that ability to break through, because many of the people now who would probably say, I'm punk rock or I like punk. I mean, I'm thinking of people like Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez in the political arena is a great example where all of her political programs are designed to empower this large centralized authority that is going to say this or this is possible. And that's it. You know, you know what? Um, I'm going to I'm going to go out on a limb. The most punk rock moment we've had in recent history is Kanye West wearing a MAGA hat. Absolutely. I think so. Because he because punk is finding whatever the wrong, whatever the unmentionable, whatever the unspeakable, whatever that yeah. raw nerve, whatever that thing that, you know, is going to be denounced and reveling in it. And for Kanye West, the same guy who said George George Bush doesn't like black people. Right to come out with a MAGA hat and meet with the president Trump. And I'm, this is not a pro Trump point here. I'm just no. making a, that is the most punk rock thing in, in, at least in recent memory, I would argue that early hip hop is very punk rock. Sure. Especially nineties hip hop when it, when it, when it creates a movement against it. Now let's talk about. And if I, if I just yeah. put a, a, yeah. a kind of lid on this to use a Bidenism, I guess, yeah. you know, there is, I, I was saying before that punk, it's hard to say what the aesthetics are. And like, if you just go to Wikipedia or, or, you know, any research about CBGBs, which is the bar in New York that is most associated with punk. And you look at the bands that played there in the seventies through, you know, I don't know, like 75 through 85 or something. Right. It, you know, it's hard to find aesthetic similarities in the same way among the beats, you know, Allen Ginsberg, Jack Kerouac and William Burroughs, the Holy Trinity of the beats 
don't write alike. They're not aesthetically similar, but sociologically, they make sense together. And I think that's true of punk, but like underlying it is this immense, it's it's almost like a, a you know, a big ball of gas that gets ignited. And, you know, it's an energy, it's and it's anger is definitely central to it. And it's important to me, I think, to think about how Pill, the band that Johnny Rotten formed. Right. Public, public Image Festival. Limited. Yeah. Yeah. Which is really interesting and is hard to listen to. It's like, you know, it's it's both great, but it's, you know, it's heavy duty stuff. But he has a song where the refrain is anger is an energy. And I think that's what punk ultimately yeah. is. It is an energy that is rooted around anger. It's not always negative, but it does tend to be destructive rather than constructive. It's expressive. It's not persuasive. It's short and explosive. You know, this is not a music or a movement that's into drum solos, you know, no. and, and, you know, where everybody is trading off in like 35 minute long songs, you know, I mean, what's funny is the Ramones and later punk bands would do, you know, 12 songs in 10 minutes and that type of thing. And there's this sense of authenticity that what you're getting in that moment is real. It might be, it might be a poser. You might immediately discard it afterwards, but in the moment, it's real. It's not manufactured. And, and you're the, the rough edges, the seams of things you're not covering up. Although even that might be too far because, you know, we've mentioned the Richard Hell, he was in the band television, Tom Verlaine television is definitely one of the central bands of the punk music movement in New York. And it's a incredibly exquisitely polished, produced sound, which yeah. is one of the reasons Tom Verlaine and Richard Hell are kind of like, you know, the, the North and South Pole, perhaps, of what punk aesthetics as a musical form can accomplish, you know, can can hold. OK, so I, with, with the time, I just want to now get to when do we mark the end of punk? Because yeah. there is a movement. I mean, like L.A. produces what could be called punk rock with like groups like Suicidal Tendency and Minor sure. Threat. And well, you, yeah, Minor Threat is D.C. I'm uh, sorry, you're Minor Threat, you're right. You're thinking, I'm thinking of Black Flag, I'm like thinking of Black Southern Flag. California. Yeah, and yeah. that is huge in America. I mean, and again, like California, Southern California punk, which also includes bands like the Go-Go's. I mean, come out of that scene directly. Right. The Germs, who are one of my favorite, and Pat Smear, their guitarist, is now in the Foo Fighters. He was the touring guitarist for Nirvana. And, uh, you know, the Germs are like, they're one of the few bands, like a lot of these bands when you go back and you remember like oh it sounded like noise and it's actually incredibly melodic and thoughtful what's great about the germs to me with their and their first album was produced by joan jett who was in the runaways which are kind of punk like out of la they sound it's, pretty punky to me yeah i mean yeah and but like the germs songs it's still noise it's beautiful it's wonderful yeah um, but yeah so um, so when ending punk though i mean i think you know, and and this and this it, is where I want to now we want to pick up rock yeah. against racism, because okay. that that's a nice kind of way to maybe say yeah. that that's where punk ends, because rock against racism involves groups that are ostensibly punk and they're trying to make a point against Enoch Powell yeah. and, you know, Clapton and anti-immigration and things like right. that. And and skinheads, you know, a rising kind of nativism in England. Yeah, that was that was working class, you know, in, yeah. in many regards. And yeah, so. At that point, you know, it doesn't sound all that different than, you know, in Rock Against Racism is how is that yeah. much different than the concept behind We Are the World? Right. Or farming. Well, and I mean, you know, We Are the World is, you know, or, uh, you know, Live Aid 
you know, Bob the, Geldof is the yeah, one who, right. from the Boomtown Rats, which was a punk band, you know, from Ireland, whose signature song was about, a, you know, identifying with a girl who shot up a school, you know, an early school shooter. I don't like Mondays. So, yes. Another song uh, yeah, be made of, today. Yeah. It's, uh, you know, but, but again, then there's like, you know, questions of like, you know, at various points, Bob Dylan, you know, sang from the point of view of, you know, of the murderers of civil rights icons and things like that. So, you know, but Bob Dylan is clearly not punk on some profound level, even although as you I, could argue that that Bob Dylan, when he when he when he when when he responds to that in that concert where the guy says Judas, because yeah, he's playing electric and he gives play it louder. Right. That's yeah. a super punk rock yeah. move, even though it's, it's a punk rock move for Bob Dylan at the end of the 70s, you know, the most yeah, decadent ever to become not just Christian, but where he talks about how his friends are going to be burning in lake, you know, lakes of fire, begging God to kill them and they won't be able to die. Like that's a punk rock move. It's not punk rock. Um, right, right. But it's punk rock move. And I don't know that yeah. that. But. So to talk about the end of things, I mean, I think part of what happens is, you know, in Rock Against Racism starts in this in 76, shortly after Clapton gives his slurred endorsement of Enoch Powell. And, you know, there's this growing discontent with Bowie and, and kind of right wing older generation, you know, people who are a beat before them. But it really, by the end of the 70s, it starts to pick up in England. And there is a narrowing, I think, of like the Sex Pistols and Johnny Rotten in particular and the Ramones in a lot of ways. You know, they hated communism as a concept yeah. because what they believed in more than anything else was free expression. Like you should be able to say whatever the fuck you want and live however you want and all of that. And, you know, there's famous uh, pictures of the, you know, and, and the Ramones, I mean, D.D. Ramon was raised in on Air Force base or Army bases in Germany during the Cold War. Tommy Ramon was uh, his parents were refugees from Hungary. These were not socialists in any kind of way, you know, and in England, even, you know, the Sex Pistols were anti-communist and anti-Nazi. I mean, there's no it, there's no ambiguity what they were for was kind of being able to do what you wanted and say what you want by the you know, the end of that first wave of punk it starts to get straightjacketed more into a more kind of conventional left-wing political stance. And I think the political possibilities of punk get narrowed and made identical to the clash, like their political program. And they well, have the, a political we, So program. we did an earlier episode yeah. with Michael Moynihan where we talked about great artists, terrible politics. Right. Yeah. And we talked a lot about the clash there. And also Gang of Four, which is another yeah. fantastic band, which is an incredibly artistically accomplished band, but also is a, you know, a left wing band and bands like Killing Joke, which also start creeping into this. You know, they are and, and later post punk people like Billy Bragg. And, you know, Billy Bragg will talk about how Political Margaret Thatcher made him a socialist. I like Billy Bragg a lot. I've interviewed Me him. Too. I find him entertaining i think it's music particularly some of the stuff that he did with wilco and and redoing a bunch of woody, woody guthrie, guthrie stuff is like phenomenal but it's political in a way that i think those first moments of punk like you could be like that but it wasn't the only thing and i think something got lost in punk as a well, musical movement when it's like okay well you know what, what we really got to do is like fight for the minimum wage or you know you know, have something good to say about Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. 
Well, that's okay. So the Clash go way too left wing for my yeah. taste. But the first Clash record, a stone cold mm-hmm. classic. Totally. Yeah. Just called The Clash. If you really look at those songs, there's a song called London's Burning. It's burning right. of boredom. It's people yeah. are bored out of their minds. There's and nothing to do because and this. Right. Yeah. And and one of the things that is frustrating to me, particularly in a British context, and this boiled up again when Margaret Thatcher died in 2013. Okay, we should talk about this. Nick wrote a great kind of piece for reason where he makes the argument that actually punk should appreciate that Margaret Thatcher did more to help their movement and embody right. their movement than they would ever acknowledge. And here, you know, there's a wonderful parody from Saturday Night Live and Fred Armisen about, you know, Ian and the Bizarros, who's the one guy who liked Thatcher at the time, but it's right. not a joke. It's not a joke. There's a, yeah. and he makes, and, and you know what? I think I'm going to do this for the readers. I want to read this one part of it, which I think is really brilliant. It's, this is from Nick's piece. I guess this is from 2013. It's far more accurate to argue that Thatcher was herself an emanation of punk, as some anti-Thatcherites have grudgingly done. She in no way came from the working classes, but as the daughter of a mere shopkeeper and as a woman, she was transgressing the established order just as much in her own way as polystyrene of X-ray specs, you know, and anyway, so that you guys get the idea and we'll put a link to it, but it, we should definitely link this piece because I think you make a very compelling case here. Well, thank you. I, yeah. you know, my favorite line, if I may say about that was that shrinking the state and shrinking the excesses of Emerson, Lake and yes, Palmer that's right. were not that's really all that different. I humbly submit that ELP's brain salad surgery is the prog rock equivalent of an 83% top marginal tax rate. Correct. I love that. More just, you know, on more banally, Thatcher got elected in 79. It didn't happen overnight, but what the punks, like it became when she died, everybody was like, oh, well, here are, you know, the top 10, the top 20, the top 50 songs, punk rock songs making fun of Margaret Thatcher. But punk rock was kind of dead by the time she took power. And yeah. what gave rise to punk and Thatcher weren't Thatcher right policies. It was the failure of the British establishment, particularly the Labour Party, you know, that had, you know, had held control like that, had hollowed out the economy that had you know, put in all of these forms of social regulation and economic regulation and control that had led to a brain drain. So the, you know, the smartest English people were going everywhere, but England, you know, even, and the tax rates were so high, the economy was so dragged down by everything, you know, that there, that the, it was hollowed out. It was a Potemkin village of a country. And that's what gave rise to punk because there and was nothing true. to do. Yeah. yeah. And in a way, that's also true in America in a, in a different form because the, you know, we were the recipient of that brain drain. We got a lot of great British talent, you know, in, in every possible way. But 70s America was in an economic torpor, oh, you know, yeah. and, uh, you know, inflation was high. Unemployment was becoming high. There was, you know, it, and, and it seemed like, you know, it seemed like a command economy in the Soviet Union and, you know, might win. And like, it was just, you know, whether it's the Stooges or the Ramon, the ref, the refrains of things being no fun, the specter right. of war, you know, possibly being drafted and sent to another Vietnam or having come from Vietnam, you know, coming out of fighting in Vietnam or having nothing to do. You know, that was a Ramon's refrain, like you would sniff glue. 
you know, like, right. and you, or you would get into fights. You would turn tricks in order to have walking around money. There was nothing to look forward to. That's what gave rise to punk. And I think that ended, you know, in England in 79 with, you know, partly with the rise of Thatcher, but like a new era dawned. And it's in America. And I don't think it's, you know, I don't think Ronald Reagan was at all punk rock. But what happened in America is that things changed. And so that first, the the material conditions, I'm a libertarian, but I'm also a Marxist. I believe that, you know, you know the ec- economic base gives rise to a cultural superstructure and a political superstructure. And the economic realities changed in both countries because of differences in policies and whatnot. And the immediate concerns of punk change. And so I think you get a lot of great post-punk music and a lot of which is still nihilistic. Of course, in 86, I believe it is, you get the unbelievable punk rock episode of Quincy. Well, that's, I really want to, we, we, we have to end on the Quincy episode because first of all, the Quincy episode is, it's not just, (laughs) it's not just Quincy. There is a movement in the mainstream culture that wants to portray punk kind of way after the fact, actually. Yeah, because there's like a WKRP in Cincinnati episode that sort of gets into some of this stuff, too. (laughs) There's a punk like there's a weird thing that punk is like, you know, destroying our children in the same way that people used to argue about, you know, rock and roll is going to make our kids have unprotected sex or or dance with Negroes. And, and, you know, in the way that hip hop, gangster rock, you know, in five years, hip hop and like T's body count or like. Tipper Gore and, and Prince with Darling Nikki. Yeah. There's always this thing. And like, as soon as that happens, as soon as the FBI says, we really don't like this NWA record. Right. You can guarantee that the NWA record is going to be a classic. It's just, right. We'd think we'd learn this. So the Quincy episode and punk rock is like, definitely has this weird kind of backlash to it. Yeah. And, and so I, I ask you, and by the way, everybody should or put it in the show links, the, yeah. you know, there's a long, segment from the Quincy punk rock episode, which is hilarious to see, like, you know, a primetime TV show 10 years, five years after punk is definitely faded, you know, doing a punk rock show. It it reminded me of a a Mannix was a private detective show that was on from like 67 or 68 until 72. And there's an episode around 1970 where Mannix ends up running afoul of a bunch of beatniks who like pump him full of heroin. And it's like, what the fuck? Like there were no beatniks left in 1970. You know what? Like, is this a time travel episode or something? But but that it helps to certify, you know, that something is definitely dead when, you know, when primetime TV is getting around to picking it up. Yeah. Yeah. And by the way, the, 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 the end of that episode, Quincy and his girlfriend, uh, like go to a restaurant and they're listening to like Glenn Miller. Yeah. Like now, well, this I think is he's actually they're about to have sex too. I, it might be like Sinatra or something. Yeah, wait, wait, wait. Yeah. Now this is music. Come mm-hmm. on, kids. But he asks in that at, at some point he's he plaintively, you know, and Jack Klugman, who was yeah. born in the twenties, best known as Oscar Madison on The Odd Couple, saying like, why would people want to listen to music that f- makes them angry and fills them with hate? And it's like, yeah, you really don't get it, right? Because that is what adolescence is about. And I think what happened in the 70s, both in England and the U.S., and and it still continues in certain pockets, like that adolescence sense of rage and of betrayal, 
you know, when you find out that your parents really don't believe in God and that they're having sex and doing drugs when they're telling you not to, and that your political leaders are just not only liars, but they're idiots. This, you know, you everybody goes through that, but then culturally we kind of went through that too, because the seventies was this great reveal that the best and the brightest, and that was something, you know, that Republicans and Democrats, everybody believed in, were just full of shit on everything. And they didn't know how to fix it. So we needed something new. And that something new could take many forms. It ended up taking the form of Thatcher and kind of, yeah, I don't even want to say Reagan, but like the deregulation of the cultural sphere and the economic sphere in America, which started under Carter, but extended into the 80s, the growth of new technologies that allowed people to express themselves and to create their own communities in real life or virtually by the end of the 80s. Like that was a game changer. And it ushered in this age. And I think that's a great paradox that you raised earlier of like, now we live in a world of glorious individualism and of unbounded individual expression. And at the same time, instead of reveling in that, like we have these post-punk people well, who are young kind of, people today want yeah, more who are hall to suppress it. Yeah. 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 No, I mean, I think kids today, my, uh, and I, you know, I just turned 59. So I'm like an old, old person now, but like kids today need to, you know, channel some of that punk rage where instead of saying like getting mad and then saying, I'm going to the principal, I'm going to the New York times, I'm going to HR, I'm going to the government which I'm going to start a band. Yeah. I mean, they need to say like, I am going to create my own world and my own community that is voluntary. And that adds to the possibilities out there rather than try and commandeer the system or the establishment. I think what was great about punk, and this is the joke, you know, that it starts with the velvet underground where, you know, the 500 people who bought the velvet underground record started their own band, the Ramones, the first people, the 500 people who bought that, started their own, including in England, you know, where the Ramones played and, you know, and then the Sex Pistol played and everybody started starting their own bands. What a wonderful liberation. It's like we were all serfs and suddenly we realized like, oh, you know what? Like the the master of the, the manor is dead and we can just wander off and do whatever we want. That happened. And we need to we need to keep pushing on that kind of punk energy, I think. Well, I hope we find it because, as you point out, it's like the, we've now gotten into this whole kind of hall monitors. And that's why, in a weird way, for the first time in a long time, I feel like the interesting cultural energy is now on the right. As Yeah, to but it isn't. I mean, I, you know, I wish it were that simple, but it's like when you look at the people on the right and like, depending on who you're talking about, like Josh Hawley, Ted Cruz. I'm not talking Marco about the politicians. Rubio. I'm talking about the. The, the 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 kids who if you're a young person and you're yeah. like a sophomore in college right now and you you know you and you you are fervently behind Ibram X Kendiism or something yeah then you're anti-punk but if you're yeah. if you're in college right now and you're like you know what build a wall given the environment of the rest of college even though I don't agree with building a wall I'm no, yeah I'm you know I'm not not our, that's a punk rock move in the sense that like if you if you are surrounded by all these people who are demanding that you kind of right. say the thing that they want to hear, even if you don't believe it, and you decide not to say it, and you say the opposite, right. and you deliberately try to offend them, which is a kind of energy on the right now more than the left, and I say I that think, that's closer yeah. to punk rock. 
I think that's, it's a point well taken. And it reminds me of my younger son, who's in college, who's 21 or just turned 21. You know, one of the conversations I have with him, because I think you're right. And he is not quite, he's not at a build a wall or anything like that, yeah. but there is one of the problems. And this is one of the reasons why I think punk it comes around every once in a while. It's like, you know, a ball of energy that gets shot in from deep space and lands and explodes and it can be productive yeah. for a short period of time. But like, if all you are is reactive and in a right, way that's right. all you can be as punk, like you can push back, but then you can't build anything. It is effectively, I think punk is a destructive energy that clears out the underbrush or, or it wipes out the, it's, you know, there, I think it was the weirdos an LA punk band had a song called we got the neutron bomb and, you know, the neutron bomb, like, you know, was rumored yeah. it would kill people, but leave buildings standing. It's kind of like punk might be an energy, like a neutron bomb where it clears out a lot of dead weight. And then you afterwards you can build something, but punk itself, I don't know that it's actually capable of building things because that right wing energy that you see on campus that is pushing back against wokeism, it ends up being too much. It is Ben Shapiro in the Daily Wire. It's it's just a negation and and a kind of taking on of whatever we're you whatever you're against, I'm for. And the problem is that Ibram X. Kendi is wrong. And the res the immediate and equal and opposite response to him is also wrong. And that's just, you know, if you stay locked in that embrace, it is Sherlock Holmes and Professor Moriarty going over Reichenbach Falls. You need to use that energy to stop the current dialogue, but then you need to start, I think, a more generative world. Yeah, uh, which, well, and this is where I would say, you know, this is to go back to Johnny Rotten, who's a strange character. And I don't, I, he would be the first person to say he is nobody's role model, but he did do that after the Sex Pistols, and he's the only member of the Sex Pistols who really had a second musical act. Pill is a fascinating band because it is an attempt to try and do something that's not simply the negation of something. It's trying by, to. By build the way, a he he says he has said in interviews that he considers Pill to be his serious work. I mean, he has. <laughs> Even though, yeah. I mean, obviously the sex business. So this is, I mean, yeah. but, you know, so about, I, and I think a lot this, about this from a libertarian space, because in my belief in libertarianism is not that it is antagonistic to the right and the left or something, but it is, a, and it provides the basis for a true alternative to two theories of control, like that, you know, the difference between libertarians, it's not between the right and the left, it's authoritarians and libertarians. And yeah. libertarians can be right-wing or left-wing, you know, leaning that way, but it's about, do you believe in giving people more individual control in the choices that matter in their lives versus authoritarians? And, and we don't have to be absolute or extreme on this, but it's that, you know, do you believe that there should be more controls and regulation on people, on the economy, on everything, on speech? And this is where it bothers me in a certain moment. This should be a great moment for libertarians. And I think, you know, because we have, we are the non-authoritarians and increasingly, you know, when you look at, and you're right, you know, not to look at politics first off, but, you know, when you look at the political arena, the political spectrum, you have, you know, people on the left who want to control every fucking transaction. If you go buy a pack of gum, they want to make sure that Amazon isn't pushing basic gum and like ripping you off or something or using your data against you. And then you have people on the right who are like, 
you know, no, you know, no woman anywhere gets to have an abortion ever, or, you know, or you can, you, you can say the N word, but you can't say these words that are against God or something. It's like you have two insane authoritarian models, hard and soft against a libertarian model, which is like, let's all start our own band. Let's all start our own label. Let's all start our yeah. own publisher. Let's all start our own, you know, voluntary communities that we will, you know, cast off when they're not, you know, then when they don't work or we realize they're, they're premised on something that doesn't make sense, or we're going to combine with this and that and just a looser world, a looser. And by the way, I would, world. I would, what I would argue is that because I, I mean, I largely agree with that is that the only way to have what like communitarians want, if you want real community, you have to in some ways be a libertarian because it has to be voluntary. Right. People cannot be compelled at a certain point. And if they feel constrained, then you don't have a real community. The only way you get real community in some ways is through that libertarianism. And if you believe, as communitarians do, that that is the natural state of, hum of, of, of human beings, and I think there's a lot of wisdom to that, that people are not naturally hermits. They want to live in communities. Sure. If you want that community to be real and authentic, then you got to let it be like a punk zine and not like you know, I don't know, but like, a, no, like not a, like a youth, yeah, not a youth Columbia records so be, or yeah, exactly. Or, or not, not Columbia. records, you know, exactly. where you're... it's gotta be like a startup in it because that is the way that, because people are part of it. They're building part of it. They're making the choice every day, as opposed to just saying, this is the structure and this is yeah. how it is. And I'm just going to have to either and that conform is... to it or take it over and make everybody conform to me. Yeah. And that uh, somewhere there's somebody who runs the label, you know, yeah. and it's Ahmed Erdogan or, you know, the executives at EMI who bounced the sex pistols uh, because they're like, oh, you know, you 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 have to change your image or your band's name is going to be well, EMI bounced the sex pistols because the sex pistols were a bunch of degenerates who ruined their True. offices. But this also, right. you know, Richard Branson and Virgin Records signed that, you know, right. and that's like, you know, Richard Branson is an enormous he's the patron of punk. He's the Demetri of punk in a way, as as is Seymour Stein at Sire Records. But, you know, Somebody like Richard Branson, and again, these weird paradoxes, Virgin Records' first big thing was Tubular Bells by Mike Oldfield, like this symphonic yeah. kind of neo, you know, orchestral music that has a lot more in common with ELP than with the Sex Pistols. But then, you know, he's the one who brought the, you know, never mind the bollocks to the masses. And that's important. If I may, to put a, a, a kind of twist on what you know, we were just talking about, yeah. I was, I, I have this note and I, I feel like I need to share with you is that punk, you know, if we think of it less as a fixed object and more of as a kind of free floating form of energy that is definitely anti-establishment and whatnot, it is an antibiotic. It's not a probiotic. What it does is it, it gets rid of a disease. Right, it gets right. rid of, you know, I the like British that. disease, it gets rid of stagflation. It gets, you know, or that's where it comes up. That's what it, but it's not probiotic, like an ultimately, you know, it, it, it gets you out of the hospital bed and then it's up to you to, you know, figure out how you live your life. And I was thinking a lot about that. I'm very glad that you invited me to, to talk about this because it made me think about a lot of different things that are kind of important to me, but in co-aid. And I was thinking of people like Iggy Pop is, you know, is just this phenomenal everyman. This is a guy who grew up in a trailer park outside of Ann Arbor, Michigan, and he now drives a Rolls Royce and lives outside of Miami. And he went from playing the most like the dumbest rock. And I mean that in the 
most favorable terms possible, you know, just chunking industrial noise where the lyrics oftentimes are just kind of mantras, you know, no fun. I want to be your dog. Like, yeah, I want to be your dog and, is what I was thinking of. And right. now he's doing, you know, now he does like incredibly, you know, kind of complicated and sophisticated music. He still can rock, you know, like nobody's business, but he, he's done a bunch of like, you know, French inflected chanteur albums and things like that. And, you know, he may be the person that we look at because he spent a lot of time in, you know, deep psych wards, you know, like straitjacket type places. So, you know, punk ultimately allowed him to clear the decks of that and then move on and become whoever he is, which seems to be a pretty, you know, a pretty productive person long lived. I think he's in his 70s. He's in great shape. He's in better shape than you and I will ever be at 70 mm -hmm. than we were at 20. And, you know, and he's produced this incredible varied body of work and looks like he's going to live forever and is and is living well. That's that's punk, you know, in, in a nutshell, is that it 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 gets you to a point where you can be the best version of yourself. Yeah, but it's and what that's going to be. Hold on. Wait a change. second. Wait a second. And then we, we got to this has been. A, yeah, this has been a terrific episode, everybody. I hope you appreciate Nick Gillespie. But I didn't say on the other hand, punk is also Sid Vicious in that dirty hotel room dying of an yeah. overdose oh it's the ramones pissing in the beer not yeah. without telling him that they gave to johnny rot yeah that's it's, yeah th this is why it cannot exist yes for very long and like what you do is you take it and use i mean it's like it's snorting a you know big thick line of meth you know there's a reason dd ramone who among the ramones you know, is, is probably the greatest songwriter, you know, died of an overdose after being clean, you know, uh, you know, it's, if you stay in punk too long, I think it, it destroys you. It eats through you like acid. Yes. That's a, that is a good way to sort of, that is a good way to end it. It's why, it's why Neil Young is still here and Johnny Rotten is not, I'm not Johnny Rotten. I'm sorry. Sid Vicious is not. Yeah. Johnny Rotten is still with us. But it's um, true in a way. I mean, Neil Young, like, God, you know, he's what in his seventh decade or something. And, you know, maybe not going to fade away. Yeah, I don't know. He's he's fading away, you know. But Johnny Rotten is still around. We, you know, obviously has like Kanye West flirts with Trumpism. And I think that's mostly about the anti-establishment thing. And yes. it's like he these you know, what punk does is it forces us to check our premises, both to know what they are and then either to reject them or maybe to embrace them in an intentional way that, you know, it's, it's an emetic, it's syrup of Ipecac. It's an antibiotic. It's, it's a purgative. Yes. And, and we need that regularly in our system. Otherwise we become, you know, we become Eric Clapton slurring and doing lazy, you know, crap. Yeah, no, we lay down yeah, and corrupt, yeah. become sclerotic and corrupt. We become, you know, like, we become our parents and, uh, we so become, be, and maybe it's yeah. inevitable. We always become our parents and that, and there's nothing necessary, you know, that there's some joy in yeah. that. I, I'm a right. new parent now, but you know, I, so I understand have that, that to look forward to, to your child screaming at you at rage that you not only cannot understand them, but that you are morally the most corrupt person. Oh yeah. You know, no, that no, ever I'm lived, sure. right. I'm sure you know? it's coming. It's coming. Nick, I don't know how to say this. This was a great episode. Thank you so much for your time and your expertise. This was a great, I couldn't, I, I, I'm so delighted. I, I really think our listeners will love it and I will have to have you back on. We need to do an entire retrospective of the Plastic Ono Band, I hope. Uh, Yoko Ono alone is, uh, she's, 
absolutely does not get enough credit. And I mean this completely unironically, as well as ironically. She is one of the great change agents of the 20th century and particularly in America. And God damn it, like our world would be so much narrower if she had not, you know, intersected with John Lennon. Okay. Counterpoint. <laughs> I'll take Ram any day. No. Thank you so much, Nick. This was great. Thank you. This has been The Re-Education with Eli Lake, a nebulous production. Please find us wherever you find your podcast. And if you are listening on Apple Podcasts, please leave a five-star review. It helps other people find the show and makes us feel really good about what we're doing.